ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Streets podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I am so thrilled that you would choose to spend some time here with me today. I hope everybody's having a good start to 2021. Um, I hope that you guys are making the most of your New Year's resolutions. That's always a big thing, and folks just kind of enter the new year with this, I don't know, mentality that they're going to try and change shit, which I fuck with in a sense, although I'm not necessarily one to wait until 21 to try to change something if it's like, you know, kind of fucked up. Like, if you're not happy with something, why not just start right away? That's kind of just how I look at it. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing it the other way. It's just kind of like how I look at the situation. But to each their own, uh, the NBA has been fucking hot and steamy, bro. Like, there has been a lot. There has been a lot going on, and we have a lot to talk about today. But before that, I kind of want to just talk about like all of the non-NBA shit. I kind of just like to get out of get it out of the way. So for those of y'all who aren't interested, you can just skip ahead to whatever, whatever the time is, and just listen to your NBA content consumed it that way without all of the nonsense that I'd be thinking about over, you know, the days or whatever. And this one thought that popped into my head was like. Being a monk has got to be fucking super cool, right? Think about it. All monks do. Well, not all monks do, but like, in short, monks, they just kind of like sit and vibe all the time. Is that not dope? Like, you sit and you just think and you just meditate and you just chill all the time. It sounds a lot better than fucking whatever we're doing here in I don't want to say the developed world because that's not correct, but the non-monk world, right? Like monks, they be out in the mountains or whatever in these little, I don't even know what to call them. They're like towns, kind of these little congregations where they just hang out with like-minded people and they discuss their religion. They discuss the sacred texts. They meditate, they chill, they read, they philosophize. And I even read that some monks, they brew beer and shit and that's kind of lit beer is cool um i've never had monk beer so i might have to put that on my list but like i was thinking about this and i decided to you know type into my my uh, browser of choice what is the daily life of a monk right because obviously they don't just like sit and chill all day they actually work and they they be out doing shit like related to their religion of course but i stumbled upon this website called tibetansponsorship.org and I'm probably gonna link this down below just so you can get a just so you can get a look. I mean, it's not a very long piece at all. It's more informative than it is um like creative. But it says day in the life of a monk, and this is a Buddhist monk, mind you. So the day in the life, the day of a Buddhist monk usually starts early, with morning prayers and meditation around 5:30 a.m. This is then followed by a regular routine of prayers, studying, and debating classes. That sounds kind of lit if you're into that type of stuff. A part of following the Buddhist path is renouncing worldly attachments in order to create space for spiritual activity. And the monks at Sarah are trying, Sarah, 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 are trying to live this path. As such, the monks have few material possessions, mainly consisting of clothes, study equipment, perhaps a small altar in their room, and treasured photographs of their family and teachers. Very minimalist. Very minimalist. I can respect that. I can respect that a lot. Like, you're not out, no social media. None of this toxic shit that we got to look at all the time. Well, that we like, we don't have to look at it all the time. But for a lot of us, like, 
we have to keep abreast of what's going on. If you're a monk, shit don't change for you. You're just reading the same book that folks have been reading for thousands of years before you. Now, it gets into like the nitty gritty of what an adult monk does, right? So 5 a.m., they wake up. They pray. Uh, this takes two hours, and in this time, breakfast is offered. It consists of butter, tea, and bread. Now, is the butter, like, in the tea? Butter tea? Is it, like, butter-flavored tea? Or can you, like, take the butter, put it on the bread, if you don't fuck with butter in your tea? Because there's no comma between butter and tea. Like I, And, like, I know this person fucks with grammar because they have commas throughout the first couple of paragraphs, so I bet they're, like, drop the butter in the tea. That sounds actually really gross. I can't, I can't front... If there are any monks that are listening to this, well, monks actually can't listen to this, but if there's been, like, someone who entered the monkhood and then left, like, what the fuck is butter tea? That's, I don't know. Maybe it's because, like, I don't really fuck with butter because it upsets my tummy. Lactose intolerance. Gotta love it. But, like, butter tea sounds not appetizing at all. And bread. Like, what kind of bread is it? Is it, like, bread? Is it rye bread? As I've gotten older, like, I'm an old man now at 24 years old. As I've gotten older, like, I really start to fuck with seedless rye bread. I don't know what it is, but you put a little avocado on that bitch, a little bit of that Trader Joe's Everything Bagel seasoning, and that shit just bangs, man. That is... Whew, whew. Oh, I'm getting the chills just thinking about it. So next, it's 7 a.m. memorization. The, mex- the monks memorize the Buddhist text. That sounds kind of dope. Buddha, Buddha sounds like a fucking swell guy. 8 a.m. is debate class. Debating is how the monks learn Buddhist philosophy and analytical meditation. This is dope. Being able to debate and form coherent and composite arguments is such an undervalued skill in today's society, I believe. Like, nobody is forcing that to be a part of their curriculums, as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I know. Like, and this seems quite important, like being able to articulate a certain subject, especially if someone is trying to push back against it. Seems like it'd be rather useful in the modern society, even like outside of being a monk. Then 11 a.m. rolls around, they gather again, they pray, and they eat. It doesn't say what they eat for lunch. Um, I imagine it probably bangs, though. Uh, noon, monks then have an opportunity to go see their indiv- individual teachers for more philosophical studies. Again, just a little bit more learning. Then 5 o'clock, they probably spent about five hours learning if I had to ascertain from this little this little time gap here gathering prayers and dinner okay again no information on what they be eating for dinner um i just think it's a little weird that they only talk about breakfast and not (laughs) and not dinner but whatever i'm not really here to criticize i'm just here to educate myself they go debate again dude a lot of talking a lot of talking like every time monks are depicted i feel like they just sit in silence and they, you know, they're always just like, mm. like they just be chilling like that. But these folks apparently do a lot of talking, which good for them. I'd love to chill with a monk. I've actually like, obviously not a, an actual monk because I don't know if they're allowed to go out and like, I don't, are they allowed to do stuff like this? Like, would I be able to interview a monk if anybody knows a monk or someone who used to be a monk? I would love to just like sit and talk about what that was like. And then to close out the day, they have memorization and recitation. 
Now, there is quite a lot going on here in these parentheticals. Whatever prayers and texts they have memorized, they then recite to enable them to keep it in their mind. This is sometimes done in the street by the only available lights, pale street lamps. They continue this until 10 or 11 o'clock, then bed. For some monks, though, in higher grades, they continue until midnight or 1 a.m.? Bro, these folks are only sleeping, like, no more than seven hours a night? What? That's crazy. I don't know how you could, like, be functional. Unless, like, they nap during the day, too? Because I know one of, like, the, I don't want to say it's a big revelation, but it's a big revelation to me because I've only been seeing it. But, like, humans evolved to be what they call, like, segmented sleepers, right? Which is where you only sleep for, you take, like, little naps throughout the day, right? Like, you'll sleep four hours at night, and then you wake up, and then in the afternoon, when you're tired again, you'll go and you'll nap. And that's kind of how humans evolve. But I guess, I don't know, it doesn't mention anything like that. Granted, there really isn't a lot going on here, which is a little unfortunate. Uh, yeah, then it closes out. This is a typical day, but it depends on the time of the year and also excludes Tuesdays, which is a holiday. That's kind of dope. So maybe they catch up on like all they're sleeping on Tuesday. Like Tuesday might be nap day or like, I don't know, the celebration of sleep or some shit. But yeah, being a monk is like, it definitely sounds kind of dope. Like, especially if you're into the religion and stuff, I think that's like, that might be the best way to do it just to fully immerse yourself in it now something that isn't a religion that i've been quite immersed in is <laughs> the aliens bro it's been non-stop shit about the aliens ever since that israeli dude the Isra the former israeli uh space force commander or whatever he was like came out and said that like oh yo by the way aliens like they be they be living among us they're chilling and um that that was a bomb bro and since then, more recently, I think it was a couple of days ago, this article was published on January 2nd on the New York Post, and I'll definitely be sure to link this down below because this is a lengthy piece. Like, I was reading it to prep myself, and bro, it just kept going and going and going and going, and I was just like, damn, this man has a lot to say. So the title, a Harvard professor says an alien visited in 2017 and more are coming. This is actually super clickbaity which I was not expecting, but this is why you read the articles, guys, guys and gals. Read the article. Don't just read the headline because publica publications have to make money and they don't make publications un unless you click on it. The Onion has a really funny piece that says we don't make any money if you don't click the fucking link. And that's actually uh, quite a profound commentary on the state of journalism today. So this was written by Reed Tucker. Shout out to Reed Tucker. And he starts the piece with when the first sign of intelligent life visits us from space it won't be a giant saucer hovering over new york more likely it will be an alien civilization's trash so we are the staten island of the universe apparently folks just be given their trash to us which i mean it really it really does make sense seeing how we fucking act on a daily basis avi Loeb, chair of harvard's department of astronomy of astronomy believes he's already found some of that garbage now when smart people like academically smart people talk about alien. It means more than me or you or Joe Rogan or Tom DeLong or your fucking Uncle Billy. It it matters more because it's like we are not trained in these fields and we are just we may be smart people, but we're not smart in 
this in how they're smart. Like they're college professors. This guy is the fucking head of a department at Harvard. He's got a fucking massive brain on him, right? And he's saying that, listen, bro, aliens might not be here, but you know, it, it's happening. It's happening. So this, they're talking about this object, right? And it kind of looks like a space turd, like a long, thin space turd, right? And the TLDR version of this is that they spectated this thing, right? This object coming. I don't want to say it was coming. It was like going against the sun's gravity. Like it had some sort of propulsion that allowed it to like not get stuck around the sun, I believe. And like that just doesn't, that just doesn't happen, right? And this was huge because according to this little blurb right here, for starters, it was the first interstellar object ever detected inside our solar system. Judging from the object's trajectory, astronomers concluded it was not bound by the sun's gravity, which suggested it was just traveling through. Now, this was spotted over Hawaii by the, the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, PANSTARS, okay? PANSTARS. The highest definition telescope on Earth. That's kind of lit, actually. Uh, let's see. At first, scientists thought it was an ordinary comment, but Loeb said that assumption ran the risk of allowing, quote, the familiar to define what, might, what we might discover. What would happen if a caveman saw a cell phone, he asked. He's seen rocks all his life, and he would have thought it was just a shiny rock. Um, yeah, that is 100% what would happen if you went back in time and showed a caveman your fucking iPhone. He'd be like, uh, he would derp out and probably beat you to death. Loeb soon opened his mind to another possibility. It was not a comet, it was not a comet, but discarded tech from an alien civilization. Again, they are using our solar system as a landfill. Um, I don't really fuck with that. Uh, let's see what else. He likens it, its surface to that of shiny metal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The excess pushed away from the sun, that was the thing that broke the camel's back. Using physics, scientists can calculate the exact path an object should take and what speed it should travel due to the gravitational force exerted by the sun. The sun's pull will speed up an object massively as it gets closer, then kick it out to the other side, only for the object to slow considerably as it gets farther away. This was not happening, ladies and gentlemen. But, um, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. Even though it has a pronunciation, it's some Hawaiian, uh, I don't even know if it's Hawaiian or some like Samoan uh, spelling. I'm not even going to try to butcher that. Didn't follow this calculated trajectory. The object, in fact, accelerated, quote, slightly, but to a highly statistical significant extent. What? In other words, it was clearly being pushed by a force besides the sun's gravity, right? So propulsion of some sort. Um, they then get into, like, this weird detail about 400 years ago, astronomer Johann Kepler observed comet tails blowing in what looked like a solar breeze and wondered if that same force could propel rocket ships through space like the wind pushes boats through water. Um, yeah, and Mr. Loeb later goes on to say that if our small brains can think of that, why would an alien civilization that is, you know, expectedly, like, much more technologically advanced than us, why would they not be able to think about that? Now, I found this one little piece that I found particularly interesting. Um, those release materials, however, from a comet system tail. Okay, so they were basically like trying to um, dismiss this, I guess, as just like space debris. And Loeb calculated, this is from the article, 
Loeb calculated that with these and other anomalies, the chances that this object was some random comet was about one in a quadrillion. That's 15 zeros, ladies and gentlemen. Now, they were saying that, I think this was, I don't, when was this discovered? In 2019? Right, so this is um kind of old, actually. This happened last year, and there were folks that were trying to uh, dismiss this, saying, quote, we find no compelling evidence to favor an alien explanation for this, this um whatever you want to call it. Um, but that was before it was cool to be like, oh, yeah, by the way, aliens are here, and we're just going to release this information. We're going to release all this UFO footage. Like, now it's the cool thing to do. Almost, you know, a year and a half later, all we're talking about are these fucking aliens. And this is so awesome like this space is so almost like incomprehensibly big that it would be almost silly to think that there isn't at least one other type of intelligent species out there right if you look at the ocean for existence for example the ocean is basically space on earth because we don't know shit about the ocean, right? There are however many undiscovered species living in the ocean, right? And we have yet to discover them because we just, we simply cannot. And space is kind of like the same thing where I don't want to say there's definitely stuff out there, but I don't want to entirely dismiss the idea that there is, right? Because even like on Earth, there are super intelligent species right look at dolphins for example they have their own dolphins are so intelligent that they have their own language that they use to communicate with one another and they have like these little underwater civilizations that they build between themselves like it's really in, it's incredible and that's on earth granted their intelligence might not be as robust as humans and also they're limited physically because they don't got these little things right here. So they can't do a lot of the stuff that we can. But like, just in terms of brain power, these creatures are just ridiculous. And same thing with octopi, octopus, octopuses, octopuses, I don't know, octopi. Like, there is just so much intelligent life on Earth that it would be silly not to think that there isn't intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy. Maybe not in our solar system because again a lot of the makes up the makeups makeup the makeups of these planets they don't cater to life like earth is kind of anomalous that life is able to grow here maybe like back in the day four billion years ago or whatever that was the case but it isn't right now but if there's like there has to be another earth somewhere out there or something similar to it right like am i being weird thinking about that like it just seems that, it just seems, I, I, don't e I don't even know, it just, it seems like there has to be something else out there, and again, you're not foolish for thinking that, like, I mean, it's good to remain skeptical, I'm kind of skeptical in some regards, but I just feel that the sooner the aliens get here, maybe not, because I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago, when we had the initial alien uh, discussion. I think a lot of people are going to be freaked out when the aliens get here. And even if they're just like, hey, we're here just to like chill. I mean, we just want to, you know, sit back and relax. Because if aliens were malicious, I think they would have vaporized us the first chance they got. Because clearly, 
if they're observing us, they're like, humans are fucking super destructive. What are they doing? They're killing their planet. They're killing their own habitat. Why should we, why should we fuck with them? They would have just like Death Starred us. They would have turned us into the fucking 10th Star Wars movie. Like They obviously think that there is some mutual benefit for there to be like, you know, a, a partnership between us and the aliens, right? I don't know when they're going to show themselves. And I do think that when it happens, shit is going to hit the fan. And folks are just going to be like, I, f- the, I feel the majority of people are either going to be like, oh my God, the aliens are here. That's fucking awesome. And then the other people are going to be like, oh my God, the aliens are here. Fucking kill them. Like, I don't know. Or maybe they hypnotize us and get us to, you know, accept them, do some Jedi mind shit. It's like, these are not the droids you were looking for. And then we all just kind of, power down for a little bit but i i love i fucking love this these alien discoveries and um mr Loeb is publishing a book i'm actually gonna pull that up it's gonna it's in the article so when i link the article for you guys to read it's there but it's titled extraterrestrial the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth and where is it it's coming out oh in a couple weeks january 26th it is on amazon so if you want to go ahead and pre-order that, I might have to go out and get this because this seems super fucking cool. This is so awesome, dude. Oh, God. Aliens are, they're so fascinating to me. They really are. I think they're like the ultimate conspiracy theory. Any conspiracy theory that I fuck with has to be grounded in some sort of reality, right? A lot of them are just kind of like, oh, we're saying this on the internet to get a rise out of people. And I don't really fuck with that. But aliens I fuck with. I definitely, I would love for them to uncover the aliens at some point in my lifetime. But um, there was also this weird thing where they snuck it into the COVID stimulus package where it's like, oh, by the way, we're going to pass this and you got to tell everybody about the aliens. So I think the highlight of 2021, however good or however, however bad it is, is President Trump or, you know, former President Trump telling us about the aliens at some point this year. But enough of this shit. I'm kind of burnt out from the aliens. We have some fucking basketball to talk about because a lot of teams, I think we're only like five or six games into the season for a lot of people. Um, Yeah, actually, no, six or seven. Seven. I think pretty much every team has played seven games except for a hand few. Um, before we get into everything, I have to acknowledge that there is a lot of pain right now in the Nets fandom. There is just, it, it's honestly, unbearable at this point it's just pain it's just pain and suffering pain and suffering is all i know pain is my middle name zachary Payne, john cronin um after a couple of devastating losses they got brooklyn got fucking stomped on by the atlanta hawks and then they lost a crushing game to the washington wizards where strangely enough kevin durant and kyrie irving missed what would have been game-winning shots i don't know if that will ever happen again like Two of two of the premier scorers in the history of the NBA missed their game-winning shots. I don't that was like nine times out of ten. I'm saying that's not gonna happen. That was the tenth time. Unfortunately, but we have a bigger issue here. And again, I talked about Spencer Dinwiddie being hurt and missing what's gonna be the entirety of the season. They miss him. They very much 
miss him. I mean, if he plays, if he's healthy and he plays against Washington, they probably win that game. I mean, at that current pace, if he just adds 10 points, it's a vic- it's a dub for them. Now, they are 1 and 3 in his absence, and I don't want to rehash this because everyone has everyone recognizes how much Spencer Dinwiddie means to this team and in his absence how everybody else needs to step up mainly Karis LeVert because he's not playing particularly well he's down to less than 40% shooting he's at 37% right now from the field he's just he's got to be better and there needs to be production from other people I'm looking at Torian Prince I'm looking at Landry Shamit you know I want to see Bruce Brown get a little bit more time I want to see Tyler Johnson get some more time. I want to see Rodion Skubrooks get some more time because like the current rotation is it's fine. But, you know, if people aren't producing, get them the fuck off the court, right? Maybe get some more minutes from Chris Chioza. He's at 15 right now, averaging seven and a half points. I mean, he's only played two games. Like what, what's, what's the hurt? You know that it's at some point, everything's going to click and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are just going to rattle off like six, seven, eight, nine game winning streak, hopefully. But you need to have a little bit more depth. And now, unfortunately, oh God, fuck. Kevin Durant is out for the next seven days because of the NBA's coronavirus protocols. Um, he doesn't have it, fortunately, but I believe he was exposed to somebody who had it. I'm just going to head over to Woj's Twitter feed and um, double check that. Because I got it last night. That's some... Oh, it's fucking email. I'm getting fucking emails. I'm recording a fucking show! Let's see. Uh, Woj, where are you at? Kevin Durant is facing a seven-day quarantine on early protocols because of exposure to a positive case. He had the coronavirus in May. Oh, that's right. He did have it. Wow, I forgot. Interesting. He had, the, he had COVID in May, continues to register antibodies and has tested negative in multiple recent tests. So that's good. But, you know, you don't want to you don't want to risk it. So he's going to miss potentially four games. I think, yeah, he'd miss four games in next week. Damn. That's just like this is where this is the pain. Actually, this is the actual fucking pain. That we are dealing with. Just. So much pain. And the schedule, I don't even know what the schedule is looking like coming up. I kind of take this shit on a day-by-day basis. I'm like, oh, who are the Nets playing today? They play Utah tonight. Excellent. Philadelphia on Thursday. Excellent. Memphis on Friday, whom they already lost to. So that's exquisite. And then the Thunder, who are currently 2-4. and four. So maybe they steal a victory there. Uh, I fucking hope so, because they're going to need it. Because, again, Memphis... Throttled, well, not throttled, but that was the game. That was the game they were pretty much without everybody, and they lost by five. No KD. KD and Kyrie were resting. Yeah, KD and Kyrie were resting, and Spence was, as we know, out. And then Philly. I think Philly is Philly is atop the East right now, actually. They are shitting on some folks. Like, they, they look good, dude. I haven't, like, watched, watched Philly, but... You know, I get the little, you get the alerts. Yo, Joel Embiid's having a good game, having a good couple games. Like, Joel is 
balling right now, actually. 23 and 12. Tobias Harris producing damn near at 20 points a game. Um, Seth Curry has been huge for them. That was an elite transaction by Daryl Morey. Um, I don't know if he'll be able to keep up the shooting because he's at over 56 overall and 54 from three. Expect that to drop a little bit, but 15 points per night is more than manageable for the lesser known Curry brother. And then Ben Simmons, Philly is six and one with Ben Simmons averaging only 13 points. I think that's the lowest. Yeah, that's on pace to be the lowest of his career, which is, I don't, I mean, I guess it's good because he's able to put that energy elsewhere, which is kind of what you need when you have a player who is as versatile as Ben Simmons. Like this guy is averaging 13 points, but he's going to average a career high in rebounds. He's at seven assists. He's at 1.3 steals, 1.4 blocks. Like this kid is, he's killing it. Like he's undeniably one of the best young players in the game. And for Philly to be this good with his scoring down really says a lot about them. If Simmons gets into a rhythm and he starts, you know, he gets up into that 16, 17, 18 spot, Philly is going to be very difficult to beat. And of course, we're going to have to see what happens come playoff time because they've been uh, less than stellar over the last couple of seasons, but I'm not putting anything past them. And as far as Brooklyn is concerned, like even though KD is out and even though Spence is out, they have a lot of issues that they have to correct. For one, the defense is fucking disastrous. Well, it's not disastrous, but it stinks. They stink on defense. They're 19th in points allowed and 14th in efficiency. Again, their efficiency is only, I don't want to say, (coughs) oh my God, pardon me. Their efficiency is 14th, and that's actually kind of impressive considering how they get up and down the court. They're 7th in pace, so their efficiency could be a lot worse. So they have spurts where they defend really well. And Jared Allen is he's their best defender right now. He is killing it. For 36 minutes, he's averaging 2.7 blocks and 11 defensive rebounds. He has an individual defensive rating of 103. When he's on the court, everything changes. And he's really not on the court for that long. He's at 23 minutes a game, which is far too little. And I get that Steve Nash wants to play small, I guess. But at this point, you can't really, you you can't. It's not working for you. You know that defensively, which you're going to have to turn it up because now KD's out for the next week. Kyrie isn't going to, you don't want Kyrie to burn out this early and have him go on a stretch where he's averaging 40 points a night. Like it's, it's not good. It's not good for his longevity, especially because you know that you're probably going to be able to walk into the playoffs, right? Jared Allen needs to be above 25 minutes a night, every night. I don't care how you get there. If you want to start DJ, that's cool. But when push comes to shove and, you know, the dam is starting to burst and there are a couple holes popping up, Jared Allen needs to be out there because he is a neutralizer in that regard. The statistics show it. The tape shows it. When actually, you want to know, let's go to, let's go to stats.mba.com and let's see how, let's see just how effective Jared Allen is in real time. I hope he is as effective as I think he is because if he's not, 
I'm going to look like a goddamn fool, actually. Um, what are we doing here? I, I'm not a fan of having to go to the player index to search for people. I think it's super unnecessary, actually. Like, there should just be a search bar in the top right corner. Okay, so I'm going to stats. Now, bear with me. It's going to take me a little bit to find what I'm actually looking for because the NBA has just so many fucking just different types of numbers. Like, okay, let's go to the defensive dashboard first. There are no, what? Huh? Are they not available yet? That's kind of ass, actually. Okay. Um, how do I find fucking on off stats? This shit is so annoying. I hate it. <coughs> and I'm coughing. Oh, God. Okay, so. This is one of those things where, like, I should have done it earlier. And I did some prep, but not for this. Um, are we not going to be able... Wait, hold on. I can just go to fucking basketball reference. I mean, they're not going to be the same, but it could be close, right? So, if I am reading this correctly, the Nets are 6.6 .6 points better with Jared Allen on the court this year. That's a pretty good swing. It's by far the best that he's had individually in his short four-year career. Last year, he was barely breaking even at 0.9. And this year, he's at 6.6. .6. Granted, early, small sample size. I don't care. Jared Allen is clearly a game changer at this point. And I don't foresee it changing because he's only going to get better as the season goes on. Knowing this, Steve Nash and Jacques Vaughn have to put their fucking brains together and say, okay, we need Jared. Well, punch of the pop filter here. I'm getting so worked up. We need Jared Allen on the court as much as, as much as possible. And with Kevin Durant out, I think this is that time. Now, you do lose a little bit offensively, but the offense is not the issue for this team. The offense is fourth in scoring and eighth in efficiency. Granted, Kevin Durant's giving you damn near 30 points a game. That's a lot. But Joe Harris is getting back to his normal self. Karis LeVert should be able to turn it around. I mean. They got some guys who, if just given the opportunity, can produce a little bit. Jeff Green has been decent. He's made four of nine threes in seven games. I mean, that's something. Torian Prince, as much as I was just shitting on him, he's shooting 39% from three, which, is, which does make him viable. Granted, probably not for long stretches, but it's better than nothing. TLC has been playing very well recently in limited time. I mean, the Nets have weapons right and if you gotta mix and match the lineups to make Jared Allen a little better and here's the thing about Jared Allen playing him playing alongside Kyrie Irving it's probably gonna make him better and we're seeing this with Christian Wood for example I'm gonna talk about him a little bit later but when you have a center or a big power forward stretch four stretch five really anyone who's running toward the basket and alongside them is an elite ball hander an elite passer, an elite scorer, just an elite player overall, they're going to get better, right? Jared Allen is long, he's tall, he's athletic, he can run the pick and roll effectively. If you just like 
played him alongside Kyrie. Kyrie could just like fuck it. He could be like, oh fuck it. Jared Allen's over there somewhere. And he's gonna go up and the gravity of his afro is going to pull the basketball down to him. And then he can just simply grab it and dunk it. And there you go. You got two points. Easy. Of course, it's not that easy. There is a lot more that goes into it, but it is a possible product of just playing Jared Allen more. And for teams that preach about analytics, right? The Nets are a very forward-thinking organization. They get down with the analytics. They fuck with the analytics. I fuck with the analytics as well. But one of the things that kind of gets lost in people whose view is too extreme, excuse me while I sip on a little bit of that H2O, what gets lost is, yes, the three ball is statistically a more favorable shot for a lot of people, at least compared to a mid-range jumper. So you take a couple steps back and you're shooting about the same percent, right? Like this is for players who are shitty mid-range shooters. I'm not talking about guys like Chris Paul or Steph Curry, CJ McCollum, guys who are shooting like 40 to 45% from mid-range. But if you have a guy who is shooting 33, 34, 35% from mid-range, which is like 16 to 20 feet, right? And he's shooting the same clip from a little bit further back. Your chances of making the shot are the same. But you're potentially getting more points out of it. That's why people like analytics. When it comes to high percentage shots, you should first try to get into the paint, right? Because a layup, a dunk, that is the highest percentage shot possible. A lot of guys, a lot of bigs are making 90, 95, 100% of their shots like around the basket, right? It is the best possible shot you can get. That is, of course, just like the, that is probably just like the easiest way to explain it. I know it's a lot more convoluted and there is a lot that goes in to the analytics, but I'm not here for that. I really don't, I don't have the numbers to do that right now. That wasn't what I expected to do today. But with that said, Jared Allen could be a benefactor on offense. And in Kevin Durant's absence, the Nets need the other guys to scrounge up as many points as possible to replace KD's production. Granted, it's only four games. It's not that big of a deal. And I don't think these four games are going to make or break their playoff chances. They could. I could be wrong. I don't know. We're going to have to see how that plays out. But ultimately, I just want to see Jared Allen get some more time because this is fucking ridiculous actually like he's playing his fewest minutes or his second fewest minutes since he came into the league 20 minutes as a rookie 26 in his second year 26 again in his third year and every year Jared Allen has gotten better on a per 36 minute basis he has improved maybe not as a scorer but certainly as a rebounder his efficiency's gone up he's averaging about anywhere from 1.5 1.5 to two and a half blocks a game. Like, it's getting better. He's fouling less. That's another thing. When you have young bigs, even if they block a lot of shots, if they foul a lot, it's kind of like you're, you're just maintaining at that point. You're not really doing anything because you can block a shot and prevent two points. But if you are super active and super energetic and you keep fouling, like if you have five blocks, but also five fouls and you're quote unquote preventing 10 points but then giving up nine on free throws, your, your team is, they're, they're breaking even. Jared Allen, since coming in per 36 minutes, his 
personal fouls have dropped from 3.7 to 2.5. Like, that's, that's pretty good. Like, for me, when I'm analyzing how impactful big men are, did my shit just freeze? Okay, that was really scary. I think... Did my... I don't think it froze. I hope it didn't. I'm trying to see. I hope all this audio is still being recorded. I think so, because the time is ticking. What the fuck is going on right now? This is... This is very scary. I'm very frightened right now. I think everything's good, though. Fuck, yeah, everything. Alright, cool. So getting back to that. When I'm analyzing big men, what I look for is a big who can pretty much average more blocks than fouls. That is the best possible outcome for me. Because it shows that he is at least a positive. Jared Allen is doing that. And that is my plea to get Jared Allen more minutes. Now, I mentioned Christian Wood earlier. For those of you who have lived under a rock or just simply do not pay attention to the NBA, Christian Wood is probably the leader for most improved player at this moment. Joins Houston in the offseason after having a pretty, uh, an eye-opening run with, I believe, the Detroit Pistons. I can't spell Christian because I'm a fucking idiot. So, comes to Houston in the offseason. Played 62 games with Detroit last year. Had 13 minutes and 6 boards in 20 minutes. Excellent production. Now, comes to Houston in 5 games. He's getting about 36 minutes. He is averaging 24 points, 10 boards, 2 blocks, and is shooting 55.3% from the floor. Christian Wood is now one of the best stretch for not stretch force one of the best forwards in the nba right at least statistically his skill set is very clincapella like right if you remember a couple of years ago before the rockets ultimately decided to not play with the center clincapella and james harden had this symbiotic relationship where they were pretty much handcuffed right and they worked very well together because clincapella played defense, he rebounded, but most importantly, he was in a safety net for James Harden, right? Him and Capella would work in the pick and roll, Capella rolled the basket, and James Harden, because he's one of the best passers and one of the most dynamic offensive players the NBA has ever seen, would find him in these weird pockets, whether it's bounce passes, lobs, dump passes, whatever. And Clint Capella really made a name for himself doing that. He was pretty much the ideal modern center because, as I always talk about, the centers nowadays, there are two camps, right? You got guys like Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid, and then you got guys like Steven Adams and Clint Capella. The latter, Capella Adams type center, is more valuable to a lot of teams and also more inexpensive. Granted, guys like that are still going out and getting $80, $85 million contracts, but it's better and really a lot easier to find people like that than it is to find a generational talent like Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid, right? Christian Wood is filling that role. Now, I did some digging, right? Very light digging. This isn't like some crazy number that people don't have access to. So, James Harden is undeniably making Christian Wood a lot better. However, 
the base. Actually, let me backpedal, right? So, thus far, in five games, Christian Wood has made 47 shots, and James Harden has assisted on 22 of them. Overall, about three quarters of Wood's made field goals have been assisted, right? This is not good. I, this is not bad. This is not, well, I mean, it's good that he's making shots. This is definitely not a bad thing, right? This isn't like meant to slander him or anything. It's his play style. And the majority of those shots are coming inside of the restricted area, wherein Mr. Wood is shooting 87%, right? Highly efficient. He's tall. He's super long. He's got great hands. He's an excellent finisher around the basket. With all of this said, James Harden is making him better, but the foundation that Christian Wood has built leads me to believe that he was going to put up these kinds of numbers pretty much regardless of who his point guard was, right? As long as they were better than what he had in Detroit. And I'm not trying to shit on the Pistons here. If the page would load, that would be spectacular. But their point guard situation wasn't exactly the best, right? Yeah, Derek Rose. Derek Rose is a quality player, but an above average point guard at best, right? He's a good scorer. He gets a lot of buckets, makes a lot of shots, but passing, he's not in the realm of like James Harden or Steph Curry or anybody like that. There's also Reggie Jackson, spent a lot of time hurt last year. And then Blake Griffin handles the ball a lot. We know that. There's Luke Kennard, who is no longer with the team. But point being, there really wasn't a consistent option for Christian Wood last year. And with that said, his per 36 minutes are on par with what he's averaging this year in about 36 minutes. So just knowing that, it tells you that Christian Wood is by himself a very, very good player. He, I'd, dare, I'd call him a great player, actually, because he knows his role and he's not trying to step out of it, right? He's not looking to get the ball on the perimeter and create for himself. He's not looking to get in the post and create for himself. He's looking for James Harden. And his goal, at least from what I've seen, is to try to get James Harden the easiest shot possible. But if the defense counters that and takes away Harden, they throw two, three defenders at him. Christian Wood's like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm open. Hi, throw it up. And that's typically what happens. Like Harden just kind of finds where Wood is at, throws the ball somewhere in his vicinity, and Wood finishes it. And then also just the defensive impact that Christian Wood has had thus far. The Rockets, as a team, oh, they suck defensively. Okay, so this argument is pretty much null and void. The team defensively is ass. Okay, I get that. And how ass do you say? 22nd in points allowed and 23rd in efficiency. Not good. Very bad. Whatever. They are still trying to integrate some new players, right? John Wall is new. Christian Wood is new. Although Christian Wood is a good individual talent trying to figure out like how the team works together. Still going to take some time. Same thing with John Wall. John Wall is, when fully healthy, a fantastic one-on-one defender. But outside of that, there really is nobody else. David Nwaba has flashes and could be like one of those guys who is on the court late in the game if you got to get a stop or whatever. But he's got to find a way to make his offense better because like the Rockets, it's pretty much Harden, another star, and then 
3 and D guys. That's how the Rockets have been built for the last couple of years. And that's honestly how they're at their most proficient is when Harden is surrounded by these guys that can kind of just make threes, keep the floor open, and get stops on defense. Um, they don't really have much of that right now. David Nwaba is potentially one of those guys, but shooting 27% from three is not going to cut it. Daniel House, same thing. He's at 20%. Jay Sean Tate, who a lot of people are talking about this year, and for good reason. Like he's been he's been pretty decent considering that he is a rookie, right? Seven points in 25 minutes. Not great, but you know what? It's better than nothing. It's still decent production. He's also averaging about seven boards. I mean, five boards, seven per 36. Pardon me. I mean. The kid has, he's made a, he's made a name for himself. Oh, he's making a name for himself, and he's earned this spot in the rotation. But like, PJ Tucker, uh, is not. He doesn't appear to be like the same level defensively. Or if that is the case, which it could very well be, he's kind of just like lost in what the Rockets are doing. Like, which kind of, kind of fucking stinks. But. Like it's it's bound to happen. Just because you have a couple individual players who are great on defense doesn't mean that the team is going to be good, which is unfortunate. And we're seeing this seeing this with Christian Wood, who has 10 blocks in five games, two a night. And you know, sometimes like it's just sometimes it's just difficult to stop people. And like the Rockets are having an especially tough go right now. Despite Harden leading, I don't know if he's leading the league in points anymore, but he's averaging 33, right? Oh my god. I think that's the first time I've ever yawned during the show. I don't know why, but oh my god, pardon me, everybody. But like, yeah, the Rockets are having an especially tough go. Like them and the Nets, for whatever reason, are just like they don't have much chemistry, a lot of synergy. Like that's what I've noticed. I mean the Rockets The Rockets are struggling because like they haven't really had a lot of, uh, what the fuck am I trying to say here? I yawned and now I just, I, I can't fucking think anymore. I don't know what it is, but like, so Harden's played four games. John Wall's played three. Eric Gordon's played three. Daniel has played four. Like, I mean, Demarcus Cousins, who they signed, hasn't really played at all. In three games, he's played 28 minutes. Like, his numbers haven't been particularly you know, noteworthy. I mean, per 36, yeah, he's averaging 18 and 13, but like that's, you really can't go off that because he's just, he hasn't played enough. So he hasn't proven to be a positive, which kind of stinks because even if he was like half of what he used to be, that's still a decent player that the Rockets could easily figure out how to fit into the rotation. But I think the Rockets, they're one of those teams where I think they're going to have a very hard time making the postseason this year. It, especially in the West, dude, the West is so fucking competitive right now. And you got teams that like, it's so difficult to project what it's going to look like because some teams are just like underperforming. The Rockets are under 500. Dallas, another team, three and four to start the season. Denver is two and four. Denver is two and four, dude. Like it's so difficult to project what this conference is going to look like because Denver, they have pretty much the same team as last season. I mean, Michael Porter Jr. is at 20 points, pretty much. 20 points and seven boards. Monte Morris is there. Paul Millsap, Will Barton, Jamal Murray, Nicole Jokic. Like, the, they've just gotten unlucky this far, thus far. I mean, they're going to pick it up 100%. Um, 
I mean, at the top, what do we got? Golden State is finally, you know, starting to look up. Portland is only three and three. They lost to the Warriors when uh, Steph pulled out his whole fucking dick and balls and dropped 62 on them. That was, um, that was crazy, bro. Just watching that game, like, Steph, I feel, always turns it up when he's playing Portland. I'm actually going to go to his career splits. I feel like whenever Steph and Dame get together, like, there's this, like, they just make each other play so much better because, you know, it's like, oh, Dame's in Golden State, he's going to put up 50. Steph's in Portland, 45. 40. Like, where's Portland at? Steph is averaging 28 points against the Blazers. And I think he's that is one of his career high marks. And considering he's played 32 games against this team in over his career, yeah. I mean, the highest is... What's the highest? I mean, he's got 22 against Charlotte. Or 27 against Charlotte. 28.1 is his career high. And that's against the Wizards. And, you know, these East Coast teams... They don't really they don't really meet up that often. So it's tougher to maintain that average because it's almost like 1.5 times the games. But dude, there's no denying that when Portland and Golden State meet up, that Steph is like on something, bro. He's like, fuck it. And I mean his 62 kind of only furthers that. And I think there like there really aren't a lot of t- people talking about Steph this year for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe it's because the Warriors aren't particularly noteworthy because they're without Clay. It's really like Steph, Dre, Kelly Oubre, and a whole bunch of guys that no one really wants to talk about. So I'm on their page right now. We got Andrew Wiggins, who really just looked like dog shit to start the year. He has dug himself out of a hole a little bit. Uh, 18 points a second on the team, actually. And shooting about 39% from three, which is really just remarkable from him but Steph is Steph wasn't my pick for MVP I feel that Luka Doncic has just I think that Luka I think I talked about this if Dallas plays well Luka should be the favorite to win the MVP especially like his numbers are going to dip a little bit maybe um compared to last year they're either going to dip or they're going to just continue to see like some sort of astronomical increase they are they're not down a little bit scoring is down assists are down but oh my god Luke is shooting 19 and a half percent from three what the fuck and he's still averaging 26 points bro that's crazy that is that doesn't make any sense actually 19 and a half percent and this fool is averaging 25.8 points I still think Luca is the favorite but Steph could easily win his third MVP this season like the Warriors they have it all stacked against them. Injuries. The roster is, <clears throat> I don't want to say it's talentless, but it's definitely not what he's used to working with. And I feel that when you're talking about MVPs, the team's record does mean a lot. And if the Warriors come like, I don't know, top five, top six, Steph is going to get a lot of consideration, especially when you consider his numbers, right? He's on pace to score a career high in points at 32. His assists, it's six and a half, about six and a half, six point four. Rebounds are five point three as well, which I think that would be a career high. It would be 0.1 off of his career high. Also, Steph's shooting, his perimeter shooting, is not even close 
to his career mark. He's at about 37%, which outside of last year is going to be the only season where he shoots less than 40%. That's every time I look at this guy's stats, I'm just more and more convinced that he's the best shooter to ever lace him up. There is nobody better than this guy. And I don't think there will be anybody that's ever better than this guy. If Steph were to stay healthy and maintain this current percentage, it would be the first time in his career that he shot less than 40% from three, which is wild. I mean, year last year before his injury, 24.5%. Again, that doesn't really count because he got hurt. And his career mark of 43. Like, I think Steph might average, like, he could definitely average, like, 37 this year. If he shoots 40% from three, oh, man. He'd have to make maybe, like, one more... I think he'd have to make like one more three a game. So he'd be at about 35. But um, it's definitely doable. And he's getting to the line at just an incredible rate. Eight a game this year. That's another career high. I mean, if people aren't paying attention to Steph Curry, which they 100% should be because he's one of the fucking all-time greats. I mean, you better start, dude, because this guy is, <laughs> he is playing probably the best basketball of his career at 32. And this is a guy who five, six years ago had arguably the greatest offensive season in the history of the league. Like that is just, this is just absolutely bonkers. I mean, dude, yeah, I think Steph has found his rhythm because they played last night. I don't know what he put up though. I couldn't watch, I couldn't watch the game because NBA TV was like, nah, bro, we're going to give you Fucking Dallas Rockets, and that's it. He had 30. He had 30. <laughs> In 30 minutes, and they smacked the Kings. Like, I think Steph is back. And if Steph is back, that's fucking scary. Right? This guy got 92 points in his last two games. They molly the Kings. He played 30 minutes, had 30 points on 18 shots. Dude, that is just... That is actually absurd. Yeah, the Warriors are scary again. And the Warriors are scary again because Steph is scary again. Like, that's... I think this is a perfect segue, actually, because I wanted to talk about a couple of the rookies, right? So, this rookie class... Um, I've said it over and over. I'm, I, got, I gotta sound like a fucking broken record at this point. This rookie class, not great, right? Couple of... Above average players or players who project to be above average NBA players. Really only one potential superstar, and that was LaMelo Ball. Um, and then other than that, a bunch of like quality guys who would either be like like starter caliber, six-man caliber. And I think the most surprising rookie right now is Tyrese Halliburton. So this dude landed to the Kings, somehow slipped all the way down to 12th. I don't know how it happened. Um, He's averaging 10.5 points, 4 assists, 2 boards in 27 minutes. His effective field goal percentage, which does not account for free throws, it only takes into account that 3s are worth more than 2s, is 67.6%. I think that Halliburton has been the most surprising rookie thus far, just because of how like, easily he's transitioned to the NBA. Like A lot of his game 
is is reliant on threes. First of all, I think he's made like I think ha- at least half of his made field goals are from three, which I mean he's making shots. Good for him. But he's playing like he's back at Iowa State, right? He was never that type of guy to initiate a ton of offense. Make a couple threes, get to the basket a few times. And that's kind of what he's doing right now. And some of the other guys, another guy, Emmanuel Quickly, who has been getting a decent amount of minutes for the surprisingly, the surprisingly elite New York Knicks. Like, you want to talk about a team that should not be playing this well? The Knicks are up there. And it's mainly because Julius Randle has morphed into this weird combination of Charles Barkley and LeBron James, which I don't, no one expected that. Knicks fans spent, I don't want to say Knicks fans, pretty much everybody spent the entirety of last season shitting on Julius Randle because, you know, his game was a little suspect and he didn't really fit or whatever. But, you know, Emmanuel quickly has really proven himself to be a very decent young man. When it comes to the game of basketball, like 10 points in 15 minutes, you know, he gets about a one assist a game, which is not great. But if he's out there just to make threes and create offense, he's doing a pretty damn good job of it. Um, James Wiseman is another guy who got off to a little bit of a rocky start, but has since kind of like found his way working alongside Steph. Decent offensive player, like his shooting stroke looks good. He could very well be a stretch five center by the end of his second year. I mean, effective on defense as well a little bit more than one and a half blocks six boards um right now the rookie of the year race really doesn't have a lot of separation because you have anthony edwards who is leading all rookies in scoring at (coughs) 13.7 while this is the case he hasn't been particularly effective it's only shooting like 42 percent from um from the field and one of the things that worried me was like he didn't really have much skill behind him like a lot of what he did last season with Georgia was based off his athleticism which dudes can eat in college if they're just more athletic than everybody but it doesn't translate to the NBA like you have to have some substance to you Um, he's struggling with that I will say however in transition this kid is a monster he when he gets the ball and he's able to get some steam and start going downhill he he reaches a new level like in the half court that's where he's got to spend a lot of his time like developing and working but this dude is already a beast in transition and you want to know what if you got a young team like the Timberwolves do I would just try to get out in transition as often as possible maximize the ball when it's in Anthony Edwards hands and let Cat do everything else in the half court I feel that's a solid game plan for them to follow and it would really just help build some confidence in Anthony Edwards because again he really doesn't do anything else consistently yet like he's got potential to be a slasher but his shooting needs work like he's a project and a lot of these guys are projects that's no disrespect to him like unfortunately this class just does not have many transcendent talents which you know we've kind of gotten spoiled this decade you know we get guys like AD and Kyrie and then Giannis and Ben Simmons and all of these guys are coming out it like Every two years, it seems like. It's like you got Ben Simmons one year, you got Jason Tatum the next year, and then you got Zion. You got Brandon Ingram, Giannis, AD, all these guys. Like, it really shouldn't be like that. And of course, like Giannis really didn't become Giannis until a couple of years ago, but hindsight's always 2020. I mean, he was one of those dudes that like had all the gifts, right? And if in the right system, like this is the kind of shit that you get. But even guys like 
Zion and Ben Simmons who are coming out within a couple of years of each other. Like that doesn't happen. These kinds of guys who are making like veteran level impact as a 19 or 20 year old, it, it, it simply doesn't happen. Um, and then Lamella Ball is probably the other rookie who gets a lot of the conversation. He's playing decent basketball, 11, 11 and a half points, about five assists, a little less than five rebounds. Clearly the most well-rounded rookie. And we saw that when he was playing in Australia last year. He just did a little bit of everything. Could create a shot. Granted, he didn't convert all the time, but does have the potential to be a three-level scorer as well as just um, an otherworldly playmaker. And he's got great size. I mean, at 6'7", six, 6'6", six, six, however tall he is, like he can crash the boards. He can do a lot of things. He just He's suffering from pretty much what Anthony Edwards is suffering from as well as that when you are asked to create a decent amount of offense as a rookie, shit just doesn't go your way sometimes. And that's fine. Rookies aren't supposed to come out and be dominant. Like, I'm not really going to begrudge them for shooting a little poorly. Like, I think Melo is shooting around 40% from the field as well. Like, it, it's tough being a rookie playing against grown men, especially, like, when you don't have much of a training camp or anything. Like, granted, all the other guys are at the same disadvantage, but it gets to a point where like NBA players are kind of robotic and they get on the court and it's it's just business like this is something entirely new for a lot of these rookies like not being the best player on the court they're not really used to that a lot of the time and yeah I just want to give a shout out to Tyrese Halliburton like he was one of my favorite guys coming out of uh, college I thought he he could have gone top five honestly and you know the Knicks I thought were a team that should have taken him because they needed a point guard. They went with Obi Toppin, who I thought was the most talented player in the class, just in terms of skill. Nothing more. Skill. That's it. Best player. Of course, he was older. It doesn't, isn't as malleable as some of the other guys. And that's cool. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna begrudge him for that. But I really thought the Knicks would have benefited from Tyrese Halliburton. However, they got Emmanuel quickly, who's doing work, you know, RJ Barrett's chilling, Julius Randle. They got, they're building a nice little thing. And as a Nets fan, I'm not upset about it because when basketball is good in New York and LA, basketball is good everywhere. Like, I'd want these two teams to be as good as quickly as possible. Like, if they were to meet in the playoffs, that'd be fucking dope, dude. Like, New York basketball has never had, like, a rivalry. And rivalries are so important just for, like, sports. I mean, we live, like, living in New York, we're spoiled, right? Because we got the Yankees and the Mets. The Rangers and the Islanders, the Jets and the Giants, although the Bills are actually the best New York State team. So shout out to them for uh, punching a ticket to the postseason. And uh, fuck the Washington football team who are beating the Eagles and kicking my Giants out of the playoffs. I'm not bitter about it. Um, I still think that the NFC East should not have one team representing them. Instead, take the best players from every team and make a team that goes and plays whoever in the first round. That's just my take. And with that, that is going to bring this week's episode to a close. I thank you guys very much for listening, whether this is your first time, you're coming back. If you are coming back, welcome back. And if this is your first time, welcome. I look forward to, I guess, I look forward to you listening again. As always, any way you could support the show is much appreciated. Following it on social media, following me on social media, leaving me a rating and a review in the, um, if you're on Apple, I think it helps the podcast algorithm. Um, I don't really, I, I don't really know, but you can also follow the show on Spotify and whatever other podcast carrier you listen to. And with that, stay safe out there, y'all. I'll catch you in the next one.